So we're uh, starting to let people into the into the room. Um, and my phone is ringing, so I'm going to stop it if I can. Thank you. Um, so welcome, uh, everyone. And we have a large uh, group uh, uh, joining the, um, the discussion today. Uh, for those that are uh, old hands at this, uh, you know George Rutherford. Uh, he and I have been talking to each other, uh, actually even before the pandemic, uh, but we've been talking uh, uh, under this banner uh, before, and we aim for these to be just very informal uh, 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 chats, really. Um, and what we're what we're obviously focusing on is COVID nineteen. Uh, George is a pediatric epidemiologist by uh, training, but has done public health work both in the HIV epidemic and in, now, of course, in the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, for a very long time, and is is incredibly knowledgeable about a, a broad um, set of issues. So we hope to tap into that uh, today. We've also um, asked. Uh, registrants to send in questions ahead of time. I have a very long list of, of questions that we'll try to get to, um, but I think it's probably time to get started. George, do you want to um, introduce yourself and then we'll get going? Yeah, hi, it's, um, I'm George Rutherford. I'm a Lucia professor of epidemiology and preventive medicine, and I have appointments also in pediatrics and the history of medicine um, here at UCSF. And um, I'm the head of the Division of Infectious Disease and Global Epidemiology in our Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. And it's a pleasure to be here with everyone. Great, George, thank you. And I'm, I'm Paul Volberding, uh, Emeritus Professor now of Medicine and Epidemiology and Biostatistics uh, at UCSF and um, uh, enjoying uh, watching things happen um, in, this, in this pandemic. And uh, we, can, we can talk a lot more about that, George. Let's get started. So, um, I was with my family over the weekend. We had a nice weekend away. It was my first airplane flight in over a year and a couple months. Um, people on my flight were behaving themselves. Everyone was masked. No one was objecting. Um, and but out on the streets, it's it's now increasingly unusual to see a mask. So the question is. Is it over? Are we done with this thing that we've been living with? What, what's your thought? It depends on where you live. If you were living in India, you wouldn't be thinking it's over. Um, and it's there's a real, uh, interestingly here in California, I have a colleague at Stanford who went to Paso Robles over the weekend, which is about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And right. Paso Robles is sort of on the northern half of that divide. And San Luis Obispo and Morro Bay are on the south half. And she said, everybody wore masks in Paso Robles and nobody wore masks in Morro Bay. So it's a, it's a real Northern California, Southern California uh, divide. Uh, but I, you know, we're pretty close to it all being over, I, I think here, at least here in California. But again, it really depends on where you are. There are some outbreaks uh, that are still going on here, mostly in the far North of the state kind of up near the Oregon border. And there are also outbreaks in Southern Oregon, but, you know, and kind of scattered here and there around California, but it's uh, get around the country, but it's, it's really going down, down, down. So when, when I was flying, uh, we were flying uh, um, 
again to Southern California, my son and his one-year-old daughter were flying, not in the same plane. Uh, and I get why it was good for her to have people around her wearing masks. Um, but I'm vaccinated. My wife's vaccinated. Um, why did we wear a mask on that on that flight? Um, I, I'm not at risk, I don't think, for getting this anymore. No, but if you had 15 people on that flight who were unvaccinated, they could have had a, trans, a cluster uh, on the plane. You know, it's a you know, transmission on airplanes is pretty unusual. Most of the transmissions that have occurred have been on really long haul flights, like from Europe to East Asia, Europe to Australia. Uh, so I, I, you know, going from here to Palm Springs, Paul, I don't think is any big. Right. So, um, George, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a, a script here in terms of anything that's, that's really logical or coherent. So I'm just going to go ahead. But uh, one of the things that we've been hearing about is the possibility that um, because schools are kind of finding it hard to enforce vaccination, uh, one of the concerns is, uh, will there be a fall surge as uh, schools uh, start up again uh, in person, uh, probably largely maskless? Um, uh, what's, your, what's your thought of, about that? And again, I'm sure it's going to be depending on where you are in terms of the risk. Yeah, I, so I think that... Um it kind of depends on what the level of vaccination is. In high schools where we've been able to vaccinate 16 year olds for uh, a couple of months now, I suspect they'll be, um, they'll be pretty much immune. Um, middle schools where we've only really been able to start here uh, recently in the last few weeks, I will suspect they'd be pretty much immune too. Uh, the five to 11 year olds, that's, those trials will likely end in October and we may be able to move them forward. And the littler children are going to come later. Their trials for six months to two years and two years to uh, four years. Those will come later. But um, what I think will happen is that uh, kind of depending on where you are and depending on a lot of issues with teachers and teachers unions and, you know, all that, you know, kind of all the whole world of occupational medicine, um, that the kids may be required to wear masks, uh, uh, certainly in elementary schools. I would assume they'd be required to wear masks because they are, you know, they're going to be non-immune unless they've been in, uh, naturally infected. But among older kids, you may see a, a push towards a requiring vaccination, a little hard to do with the, the vaccines not being fully licensed yet. Um, but the BLA, the applications for the BLAs have gone in for both Moderna and Pfizer. And I think they've, um, uh, they've requested to go down to 12 years of age. I know that Pfizer has, I think that Moderna may have as well. I think so as well. Yeah. Um, we saw over the weekend um, that I think the world's largest sporting event, uh, Memorial yeah, Day, I saw that too. 500 yeah. happened, 140,000 people or something um, down from their maximum from previous years, but still 140,000 people in the same place. Um, but it's outside. Uh, what's your sense as sports kind of everyone, I think, is eager to get back to, you know, watching baseball, watching uh, the, whatever sport you're interested in, what's your, what's your comfort level with big crowds either outside or big crowds inside, but in big venues? I, I think it's, you have to be a little uncomfortable still. Again, it's not about vaccinated people getting exposed. It's about having clusters of unvaccinated people. And until we can get to something a little farther down the line, a little higher co vaccine coverage, we're not really going to have herd immunity and we could propagate transmission. 
Um, that's the concern. And um, so outdoors is better than indoors. Um, uh, and But I didn't see a single mask in the whole Indianapolis 500. Um, I, I was looking. I have great shots of the Kentucky Derby as well. With, right, right, right. Very few people with masks on and everybody's yelling their heads off and stuff too. So uh, I think that it's, you know, we're still a little ways away from um, being able to do that with impunity, um, but it's, uh, we're getting closer all the time. And it really depends on what the, what the vaccine coverage levels are. And that those are going to be different in different parts of the country. George, I know that there are, I'm see, seeing questions coming in already. Uh, so I think one of the interesting uh changes that we're seeing in, in our programs that we've done here is that now as more and more people have been vaccinated that we could try to take a poll of the of the registrants but um, people are asking questions uh, about their own risk now that they have been vaccinated and one of the issues is um, what's the likelihood uh, that because of waning immunity from a vaccine uh, we're going to start seeing uh, more people uh, that are getting infected who've been vaccinated and what's, how are we tracking that? It sounds like the CDC is not planning on uh, any systematic tracking of infections or, or mildly symptomatic disease in people who've been vaccinated. Who's gonna be pulling that, uh, uh, that weight for us? We all wanna know the answer. So you've asked three questions there. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> so the, uh, to, to start with people who are vaccinated uh, so start with what causes vaccine failures. Um, and they're the largest reason for vaccine failures is mishandling of the vaccine. So you're injecting saline instead of a biologically active ingredient. And this is a, you know, the, the, the mRNA vaccines are pretty touchy, right? They're pretty delicate. Um, and so you can imagine as you increase the number of distribution sites, which is what we're going to have to do if we're going to vaccinate you know, younger adolescents and children are going to have to go out to pediatricians' offices. You know, I, last time I looked, there were a lot of minus seventy degree freezers. Even though you don't need that anymore, I realize. Yeah, I realize. Yeah. Um, but still, these are you know these are delicate, relatively more delicate vaccines. They're not really hardy things. It's not like giving tetanus or something, um, or tetanus toxoid, I should say. Uh, the so that's that's one thing. So the reason that people fail vaccine is largely because of mishandling. I think the other thing that to point out is that certain people may be less likely to have a, uh, a robust immune reaction. People right. who have solid organ transplants who are immunosuppressed on you know, immunosuppressive therapy, maybe people who are very old, although that seems, seems to be pretty robust in them as well. But there is a concern among people with rheumatologic disease and um, organ transplants and stuff uh, that they may not be as likely to um, have a, have a robust immune reaction. So that's kind of still being worked out. If you're not in those, if, if you don't have that problem, I, I think you're, you're golden, you're done, you are done, right? There, there are, the failure rates currently are at about one in 10,000, probably a little less than that, um, but it's still, you know, vanishingly small. And as I said, remember that the, the main reason is mishandling. Uh, so, uh, what I'm thinking is, is that um, as we move down the line, we're going to have to keep an eye out for vaccine failures. And for a couple of reasons, one is waning immunity, which is, you know, I think that's a bit of a misconcept uh, because, you know, we have both cellular and humoral immune immunity. The antibodies wane, obviously, 
if you're kept antibodies for everything you've ever experienced immunologically, your blood would be like jello. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, and you know, that's why we have memory cells. And as we get an increasingly sort of sophisticated look at what's um, what's going on immunologically, I think we'll find that we'll that we have quite robust immune reactions on rechallenge. Now, then the next question is is what's going to happen with um, with variants? Okay, and the current variants seem to be amenable um, more or less to the vaccines. Um, there are alpha, alpha, beta, gamma. All of the above, you know, all those goodies, <laughs> yeah, all those good things, yeah. Um, you know, and, and it may we may come down eventually come down and have variants, and we might need additional vaccination, much like um, we have required for influenza because the strains change. There's enough of antigenic shift, but but we have to look for that stuff. And what CDC has said, and the California Department of Public Health has gone along with this, by the way is that we're not gonna do nationwide surveillance for breakthroughs, for, through vaccine breakthroughs. They're just too rare. It's just too taxing uh, from a kind of a resource standpoint to do that sort of thing. Because in order to do it right, you have to do PCRs on everybody every week, right? To, to actually find that stuff. And so or putting their money in, into a handful of cohorts yeah. to look for that. Uh, and then California, for instance, is just matching the immunization registry with the COVID registry as a real kind of poor man's option. Um, but, the, you know, you're going to rely mostly on big cohort studies that are doing this. That's where you'll see this stuff happen and, and uh, kind of have a catch as catch can system, which is what was going on nationally, seems to be, you know, un, you know, just not that, not that great. And they'll, you know, and they are looking for um, both for hospitalizations and for mortality. So they're trying to catch the distal tip of it. Right. Um, but we're going to have to rely on large cohort studies, mostly involving healthcare workers to pick this up sooner. This is a classic example of sentinel surveillance as opposed to blanket surveillance across the population. So, so I think I've answered all four of your questions. Yeah. So, so I counted three, but then I answered four. Yeah. Realized. But so, the, so when we start at some point, perhaps seeing an increased number of sick people that have been vaccinated, that's when we probably will see the trigger pulled to really seriously consider uh, some sort of uh, booster, if you want to call it that. Is that. Yeah. 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 Although it's, but we're not trying to boost immunity per yeah, se, yeah. we're trying to broaden it. Yeah. 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 Um, so you said, early in our conversation, George, that, you know, it, the epidemic's not over in India. That's obviously clear. Um, and although I think even there, it looks like maybe they've passed the, the, the peak of badness, but, you know, you've done tons of work in a ton of different countries. Um, uh, and, you know, you look in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Nigeria is a gigantic country with a gigantic population. I've heard it that may surpass India within a few decades. Um, well, that, I've heard that, but of course- oh, I don't dispute that you've heard yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard there's a lot of election fraud too. Um, so, uh, you know, but, but you had this massive outbreak in India and, but another, and you could pick others, but other populated poor countries uh, with limited uh, healthcare uh, capacity have not seemed to have that that scale. Why? Why is there such a difference in in, in the way uh, countries are being affected by this? Any guesses? It's all guessing. 
right? Yeah. I mean, it, what India got was the B117 mutation, the, the UK mutation in Northern India. And that seemed to have triggered a big new, a second, big second wave of, of infection. Um, and then they had the, the uh, B351 mutation later, the so-called dual variant, which actually has 13 mutations on it. But it's, um, you know, there are, um, you know, they had some bad luck, some serious bad luck with, with variants before anybody was vaccinated. India still only has five or 6% of the adult population vaccinated. So, you know, um, and, you know, India has a sophisticated medical system. Um, and so they're, they're in a position to diagnose a lot of people. If you look at the three largest African countries, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and South Africa, South Africa is really probably the only one that's in a big in position to, you know, do the right thing and figure this all out, you know, to, to figure it out. Yeah. And they've had 40,000 cases. So I'm not quite sure what's happening. What you have to remember about Africa is the youth bulge in Africa. There, there are a lot of people who are young in Africa. Um, and it's a big chunk of the population to the extent that younger people don't get as symptomatic and, and don't present for diagnosis. then I think you're going to see, um, you know, this may be, this may be happening at, at, at the, at an asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic level. And, and you're really not seeing a lot of symptomatic cases among older people. Having said that though, the president of Nigeria died, no, the president of Tanzania, Tanzania died, yeah. died of, uh, of COVID after, you know, not saying there was no disease and, and right. suppressing all the data. So, you know, I, I think it really remains to be seen. The next big ground for, or the, the, not the next, the big uh, area now where there's a lot of transmission is the Southern cone of South America, where they're just going indoors through the winter. So this is uh, every place from Brazil we've known about for a long time, but Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile all have large outbreaks. And the Chilean one is particularly interesting or distressing, depending on what side you're sitting on, um, because they have a largely vaccinated population, much as the other place that's experienced, I think, is the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean. Um, but they've used a lot of the Chinese, the, sort of that first generation Chinese vaccine right. that's basically a whole killed virus product. And, um, and that might be what's going on with them. Great. Um, George, uh, people don't probably know, but they should, that you've had a huge role in the response to this pandemic in San Francisco with the, the case contact uh, finding and and you've thought about that and other diseases, I know, in your career as well. Um, so did that work? Um, was, that, uh, was that part of why Northern California has been relatively spared? How, can you guess about the cost and cost effectiveness of, of case contact finding as a strategy? And what about places where they didn't ever try it? Is there any, any lessons that you think you learned at this point? It's, it's hard to say, Paul. I mean, it's uh, first of all, trying to figure out how much it costs is anybody's guess. I mean, it's a lot of sunk salaries, but after realizing San Francisco, there are a lot of people whose salaries were already being paid that just got repurposed to doing this. My, my favorite were all the city librarians who right. were absolutely terrific at it. Um, and uh, it, it's not, it's, it's hardly free and it's a lot of kind of person power to get it done. It's also, you know, it's also very dependent on the population of being cooperative, not only with naming names, but also staying in, you know, staying in isolation and quarantine if they've been infected or exposed. That's the part that I don't think we, um, you know, if we were going to do this again, 
I think we'd want a lot, a lot closer tabs on people. Maybe not quite like the East Asian countries have done it, where it's pretty, you know, draconian. Yeah, yeah, or that's a good, that's a word for it. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty serious stuff. Um, but I don't know that we can pull that off. The other thing I think is the kind of the lost promise of all the electronic electronic notification systems. Um, I think those work uh, work have the potential to work if you're you know walking around looking down at your phone all day long. But I could tell you if my you know the people we worry about, the older people, you know people who are doing day labor, who are you know going to be somewhat less sophisticated electron with electronics, you know it's just not going to work, right? I mean, I think it's great for undergraduates and I think it's great for high schools and stuff. And we may still see some really good ex examples from that. But I think in kind of the, at the beginning of this and the larger risk in the larger risk pool, we just, it, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't that far along to really be able to, you know, kind of divide it up. If we could get 20, 30% sort of scraped off the top and having it happen automatically, I think that's great. But you know, the people, a lot of the people we're dealing with didn't really have those kinds of resources. So even though you're doing uh, case contact finding, <clears throat> following through and, and, and making sure that the people that were at risk uh, who should be quarantined yeah. actually followed through, it's, it was hard to do that. Well, it's just, it's, it's not hard to quarantine them. It's not hard to tell them to be quarantined and isolated, but where are you going to put it? You have five, five yeah. guys sharing yeah. an apartment. It's not exactly a happening thing. And, you know, we used, took over a lot of the hotel space in the city uh, and moved a lot of the homeless off the street to, uh, to protect them and to you know, protect further ongoing transmission. But still it's, you know, it was, a, um, it was not, there were not a lot of deep plans about how to do this beforehand. Sure. Well, understandable. Uh, although I think hopefully, well, let's talk about that. So what's your, what's your thought about, um, so Laura Garrett says we should have been kind of better prepared. I think probably a lot of people agree with that. Uh, how, what do you think, think we should be doing for the next pandemic? What, what's, your, uh, what's your takeaway so far? Well, I, I think first of all, we have to realize that, you know, nature is as much, as much of a challenge as foreign governments are or as terrorist organizations. I mean, I think you have to put it up there on, the, on a threat list because lots of stuff happens that, you know, that we're just not, as we see, as we see now that, you know, you, um, that people aren't used to dealing with, right? They're, they're used to dealing with foreign governments. They're used to dealing with crime. They're used to dealing with terrorism. They're not used to dealing with, you know, the whims of mother nature. Um, so that's, I, I think that's one thing is that the, you know, the pandemic office needs to be reestablished in the White House. Um, and we need to move this up to a much higher footing and get a big international treaty about this. Um, a second thing I think that we need to do is that we need to reestablish the surveillance systems, which we're in the process of doing. I don't know if people knew this, but the but USAID killed our um, zoonotic surveillance system, including a zoonotic surveillance system for, for bats with beta coronaviruses in Wuhan in October of 2019 in a particularly prescient move. Good timing, yeah. Good, Good perfect timing, you know, and nobody got in trouble for it, I'm sure. Um, so, I, I, you know, that all has to be reestablished. And um, I would hope that we'd be, we'll be working, I hope, with Davis to, to do that, the University of California Davis and School of Veterinary Medicine, which has a huge presence in this, uh, in the field and a million partners all around the world. That's the kind of stuff we need. Um, having said that, you know, those are kind of two big ticket items. 
I think we need to have more detailed plans and about what we're going to do next time, because there will be a next time. Um, and uh, I, you know, it's just what we're going to need to do. And if we're going to need to do contact tracing, we need to figure out how to do it um, more efficiently, where we're going to put the people. So the Chinese, the Taiwanese <coughs> um, erected sort of temporary hospitals to house people who are quarantined or isolated. I mean, we're hesitant to do that, but I think that's the sort of thing that we should be ready to, you know, ready to move on. Um, where are the people going to come from? What kinds of electronics are we going to use? What sort of laboratory capacity do we need? I think one of the other great sort of sins of, uh, you know, early, this early epidemic, um, uh, which sort of falls under the uh, overlying arching, overarching category of hubris, um, was, you know, not having enough, not using the test capacity that was available. Um, and, you know, infighting between CDC and FDA and not moving out to the commercial manufacturers for getting the kinds of testing capacity that we needed. My daughter had what clinically was very, my oldest daughter had very clinically, clinically was very apparent to be COVID, complete exact course, um, got at the supermarket, you know, when she was masked going, having to go to the market. And this is in Virginia, not a test to be had, not yeah. a test to be had. Uh, and this was in like mid-April last year, right? It was pretty deep into it. And that's some that's stuff that just shouldn't happen. Um, it, it, you know, the Chinese had the capacity to test for this by mid-January. Um, and then the Europeans developed it pretty quickly. And we're sitting around <clears throat> with CDC that made a decision that there'd be a few hundred cases of this and we'll do it like we did pneumocystis in 1981 for HIV right. and we'll be able to control all the drugs and the reagents and we'll know exactly who's who. Well, they are only off by three orders of magnitude. So. George, you've mentioned a um, couple times now, China and Wuhan. Um, and, you know, that's been hitting the news again the last few days. Um, thoughts on where we are with this ongoing investigation about where this virus came from and, I, yeah. What's your thought? I think I think it's important to I think it's important to know. I, I think that a lot of this is political, obviously, um, but I, I think it's important to know what in their, what situations these uh, these these kinds of uh, outbreaks occur. There are another four or five bat beta coronaviruses in East Asia. Yeah, I was going to ask they, you about that. Are they are, are they the next thing? Yeah. Probably. I mean, influenza is always the next big thing. Influenza A is the next big thing. But, you know, yeah, that's those are, you know, those are not low likelihood events. Those are, you know, I think, you know, we might see another one, maybe not in our lifetime, but in our kids lifetime. And, and that's what we need to be kind of up and prepared to, uh, to take on. Um, so, but I think it's interesting to think about this as, a, you know, I mean, how exactly did it get from bats to people? Uh, I think the laboratory part is probably not right, um, but I'd still like to know that the actual chain and does it involve pangolins? Does it involve, you know, some other intermediate species? You know, what exactly is going on? Because that's how we're going to have to, you know, base the surveillance. George, there are a couple uh, questions that people have sent in and, and that I've uh, been tossing around as well about this, uh, the whole heterologous vaccination. So, um, if you've been vaccinated with one company's vaccine, does it make sense uh, to, again, going back to your statement, broaden the immune response by 
intentionally using a different vaccine next time. Um, I guess this is not exactly the same thing as the next round of vaccines that will be re-engineered, but what's your, what's your uh, reaction to that discussion? I think that it's, you know, I mean, the, the, the recommendations is you, you know, you, you, you get you use the same uh, product that you were first vaccinated with. That's what we've tested. That's what we know that works. I think the chances of the two mRNA vaccines canceling each other out or make, or, you know, having greater side effects are pr- probably pretty low. And even CDC acknowledges that um, if you can't get the, uh, get the, you know, uh, Moderna, you can use a Pfizer. If you can't get the Pfizer, you can use a Moderna. I, I think that that stuff's um, fine. I, I don't know about mixing mRNA and adenovirus vaccines. That's probably pushing it a little too much. Um, and uh, but I, I would not go out of my way to try and engineer that uh, as a as a as a vaccine strategy. I think just stick with what you have. We know that it works, and we know that it's works spectacularly well. So why mess around with it? So um, without getting too very political. What's your, what's your current thought on the CDC? Uh, a, a friend of ours, Rochelle Walensky, is now the new director. Um, how do you think she's doing in terms of the communications and decision-making uh, that we're seeing so far from the new CDC? Is, are, are things better? It's night and day better. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, there've been a few missteps. Um, we, we were, um, this business about outdoor transmission and summer camps, she got kind of ambushed by that, but, um, you know, uh, but it's, I, I think we're, I think it's a lot better and um, it's, you feel like somebody actually, you know, is at the helm who, who's, you know, who's trying to do more than, um, you know, hold the line. So, um, I'm, I'm looking at some of the questions that are coming in from the from the group, and you can put your questions in the Q and A, um, and I'll try to keep track of it. But uh, one of one of them is about uh, vaccinated nursing mothers. So, um, should vaccinated nursing mothers um, prolong breastfeeding uh, beyond the, the usual recommendations? And in, in, in order, well, to I'd be interested if, her- if, as an internist, you know what their usual recommendations are. I mean, I'll- well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing for my granddaughter that uh, switching to milk should start about a year. Yeah, that's that would be that would be outstanding. That would be great. It's nutritionally, there's not enough. You know, you can't go much more than a year. But um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, the longer you breastfeed, the better. And uh, it's uh, you know the WHO you know asks you know really wants people to exclusively breastfeed for six months, which is probably you know that that's pushing it a little bit, I suspect, but. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, most of the antibody transfer occurs in the colostrum in the first few days of, of, of life. So, you know, I mean, it's all, it's all socialization and nutrition after that. Got it. Got it. Um, so earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that um, vaccines might not be as effective, and we're certainly seeing this in solid organ transplants and other people, various kinds of immunosuppression. Two yeah. questions. Uh, because this is a, an HIV AIDS uh, uh, audience to some degree. Um, uh, what do we know about people with HIV and their, uh, their um, response to vaccination? And for those people that are definitely immunosuppressed, let's say solid organ uh, recipients, should they be covered with monoclonals? Uh, um, because we know that the vaccines aren't working very well in those. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is an evolving field and we're going to have to figure it out. For right now, you know, somebody with HIV who's, um, who is, um, uh, who's virologically suppressed, I think has, you know, perfectly reasonable um, chances, same chances as anybody else of having, you know, a robust vaccine response, which is exceptionally high. Um, if you're unsuppressed and you get infected, as a, and this is one of the scenarios in South Africa, you may have prolonged infection, and which which is how we breed variants is these multiple replication cycles in a single host. So that's a concern. Uh, that's a concern. I, I suspect what will happen um, going forward is that we'll need to. Uh, first of all, there'll be some really specific guidance about this that will come out, um, and it may come out from the rheumatology societies. It may come out from the oncology societies. It may come out from CDC. Um, and some of the things to consider is: should you be checking people for spike uh, for spike antibody antibody to the spike protein? Right. Um, should you be giving them a third vaccine? Should you be covering them with monoclonals if they get exposed, like post-exposure prophylaxis? Some of those trials are ongoing right now. I mean, for right now, I can't give you a real clear answer to the question. Um, but what I can tell you is that the European Rheumatology Union, or whatever it's called, issued guidelines for uh, a variety of, uh, of vaccinations in the face of people on the immunosuppressive therapy. And it was actually before COVID, but you can kind of translate it over to COVID. And it's, you know, if you're on, you know, X monthly uh, methotrexate, for instance, or something, you'd probably want to give the vaccine, like right before you give the next dose of methotrexate, you know, to try and get a, a peak and a take. Or if you're, you know, you might skip a cycle or something. Um, but it's, you know, I'm, you know, I, I know about pediatrics. I don't know a lot about rheumatology, um, but there are really, there are, there are good guidelines about it that I think you could probably generalize from, but basically if you have pa patients in this, uh, in this cat, in this kind of group, you might want to talk to a local infectious disease uh, person to see what their, what his or her advice might be. So um, an interesting question from one of the registrants about, uh, um, we don't really hear a lot about people who have had COVID-19. Um, uh, what should we be thinking about them? Should they be, uh, are, they, are they protected? Should they be vaccinated? Are there any risks of vaccine in people who have had COVID-19? Sure. So the, um, the current recommendations from CDC are that people who've had COVID-19 need to get vaccinated. Uh, some of the European countries, France, for instance, has said they only need a single dose. Uh, that may be as much about vaccine preservation as anything else, but I, you know, something like that. And I suspect we'll get some additional guidance from that uh, coming up. Uh, people who, who've been naturally infected have less robust, have had less robust immune reactions than people who've been vaccinated. That's how well the vaccines work. Um, and uh, probably have more rapidly waning immunity uh, and may or may not be that protected. And we've had a number of cases of people who've developed a clearly documented second infection. Um, so um, it's not a get out of jail free, free card having been previously vaccinated, but previously um, infected. But if you look around the country in places where there've been big outbreaks, you see a much more rapid fall off of, uh, of incident cases suggesting that whatever happened in the last big surge uh, still has um, uh, still is uh, providing immune protection to a, at the population level. We're seeing this in Los Angeles 
um, where there were horrendous outbreaks in December and January. Um, and they're now down to, I mean, it's gonna still sound like a lot, but they're down to hundreds of cases a day, down from tens of thousands of cases a day. So a question about um, kind of long-term uh, strategies now, uh, what's the likelihood, assuming that, you know, that the rich countries can get their act together and, and start really getting vaccines out to the rest of the world, is this a, a pandemic that we can eliminate? Is it one that we can control? Um, what's, your, what's your best guess about what, where we might see this go? My best guess is that we'll be able to control it, but not eliminate it. We really don't have that kind of vaccine coverage, even in this country, even in the state, Paul. And, you know, think about being able to do that around the world, I think is, you know, unlikely. Uh, so I would say that, you know, we're going to be one of the routinely administered uh, childhood vaccinations that may need booster doses or may need additional doses every once in a while. Um, but that's kind of the best I, you know, that's the best my crystal balls can, can yeah, say at yeah. this point in time. And it's just something we need to be following closely. So um, one, another thing that we've been hearing about in the news uh, increasingly, I think recently is the issue of mandate, mandating uh, vaccination uh, for healthcare workers. Um, mm -hmm. I saw the thing in Houston, I think uh, healthcare workers are suing to not be required to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, colleges have struggled with this, I know in a number of states. What's your, what's your uh, guess from what you've heard about uh, where we might be going with uh, mandating uh, vaccination for different groups? I think we'll end up there being, well, I think we'll end up with some vaccine mandates. Frankly, it would help to have a license, a formal license for these, uh, for these drugs first. Uh, but I think once that happens, then we can move to have mandatory vaccination. I mean, you know, the military is not mandatorily va vaccinated. Um, so that would be like a place to start, you know, law enforcement. I mean, I've, I find it you know, somewhat scandalous that the um, that uh, people working in nursing homes and providing elder care and stuff are not required to be vaccinated. That's another place I would start pretty early on. Um, the University of California system is going to require vaccination. Uh, next year, but it has exceptions written in, um, you know, philosophical exemptions and medical contraindications. And the only medical contraindication is anaphylaxis to the, to the first dose of the vaccine or the components of the vaccine. So that's going to be a relatively narrow uh, series of contraindications. So I think we're going to, you know, we'll see it and, you know, how many people will, will manage to get out from it. it. It remains to be seen. And what do we do with them? remains to be seen as those people are going to be screening two or three times a week to make sure they're not infected. Again, there's not a lot of risk to vaccinated people, but if you get a lot of unvaccinated people together, you can have, you know, spreading and have sustained transmission, which is something we're trying to get rid of. So um, thoughts about, um, alternative approaches, diets effect on, on COVID. Um, any thoughts about, about that? I mean, I'm guessing I know the answer, but why don't you help reassure us? You like, like, like strings of garlic around your neck? Is that I think so, or vitamin C, <laughs> you know, you've seen it before. Actually, uh, Linus Pauling taught me uh, chemistry at Stanford. So. There you go. So it's a good, it's a good source of renal stones if you take a lot of it. Um, 
<clears throat> I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think there's really anything there. I mean, the question is, think of the, think of a nursing home where there's all of a sudden a couple of cases. If this were influenza A, we put everybody on prophylactic antivirals. This is the antiviral society, right? right. We put every, we put everybody on anti uh, on prophylactic antivirals to the end of the to the end of the spring. I think we might see something like that happening. Now, it's probably not remdesivir. It might be monoclonals. We'd have to see, and a lot of it would depend on what variants are circulating and things like that. Because the monoclonals can be blocked off with relatively minor changes and configurational changes. Uh, but it's, you know, I, I could see scenarios like that happening. There might be post-exposure prophylaxis in households, um, you know, certain situations, military barracks, college dormitories, things like that. But I think that's probably all we're really talking about besides beyond vaccines. The vaccines have been so spectacularly successful. There hasn't been tons and tons of thought given to this. So I'm, it's I'm, not fair. There actually has been tons of thought given to it. It's just as a, how practical it is in the yeah, face yeah. of such successful vaccines. George, you mentioned just a minute ago, I hadn't really thought about it, but uh, that the military is not requiring um, COVID vaccination. And yet I've seen all sorts of photos of, you know, recruits standing in line, getting about a million different vaccines all at the same time. Are, why can't they uh, include COVID vaccination in their, in their intake? My, my understanding is it's because it's not licensed yet. Now that may be a legalistic. Got it. Um, construct, but that, that's my understanding of it. So um, one uh, person wants to go back to our to your comment earlier that you think air travel is not a big risk, but that long, long haul air travel might be uh, more of a risk. And, and he or she specifically says, okay, let's talk about flying to India, flying to Europe. Uh, what, what would you do practically? Yeah. Um, in terms of that long travel? I, I think I, it, I may have been misunderstood. I said that the air, air, airplane outbreaks were on long haul planes. They weren't on the short haul planes. So if you're vaccinated, I think you're vaccinated. Now the FAA is going to require you to wear masks right now. Okay. So let's be, let's just be clear on what the, what the biological risks are and what the, what the rules are. Um, and first of all, I wouldn't be flying to India if I were you uh, at this, at this yeah, moment yeah, in yeah. time. I'm not sure you're allowed to, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure so you're certainly not allowed to fly back. Um, I think if you're uh, going uh, long haul, um, you know, it just you just increase the chances of being exposed to somebody. If you're vaccinated, though, it doesn't really matter unless you're a solid organ transplant or something like that. Um, and I would be, you know, I'm pretty sanguine about it all. And, uh, you know. If I could get into, if I, yeah, I had hoped to go to Europe a couple of times this summer, and um, I uh, still hope that uh, I'll be able to go. Um, you know, I'll wear a mask on the plane. I'll try and do the sorts of things that you do to, to minor minor things you do to mitigate risk. But um, you know, I'm not going to be very worried about it. So uh, another question is, how confident are we that what we've been seeing, the fluctuations in the in the cases in in our country, for example? Uh, is really a result of vaccination uh, uh, uptake versus uh, other things that might be happening, such as changing in the weather or um, or following uh, distancing and other guidelines. What's uh, are you confident that most of what we're seeing is vaccine related? 
most of what we're seeing is vaccine related. What we're not, what the part that's not vaccine related is from naturally acquired immunity. You can plot vaccination levels versus incident cases, and it's a pretty straight relationship. So um, another uh, a person puts in that studies in, in Israel where the vaccine uptake has been very high uh, shows kind of more than a one in 10,000 uh, uh, breakthrough uh, infection after, uh, after vaccination is what, mm-hmm. what's your, what's your thought about? Yeah. I mean, CDC put that number out. They actually didn't put that number out per se. They put out something that, you know, you had to do the math to get to that, but it's on the order of one in 10,000. In the trials, it was one in a thousand and one in 2000 for the two separate vaccines. And I suspect that's really what we're talking about here. The J&J, because the trials were being conducted in South Africa and Brazil with some, you know, some pretty Hard, um, harder variants, yeah, harder yeah. variants uh, was more like one in 300. But, you know, measles is, is, 95%, right? So it's it's not, um, well, I mean, that's not fair. You have to be exposed to get it. But it's, you know, I mean, I think those are what the real numbers are. But again, what we're trying to prevent is death and severe disease, right? And I, I think that, you know, using these cross matches between the immunization reg- registries and the cases and the, the case registries, it's a perfectly legitimate way to do that. We may put up with more background circulation um, uh, going forward now. Uh, but I think that, you know, keeping our eye on the, on the, um, on cases and hospital on severe cases and deaths is a, is a, is a not unreasonable way to do it. As long as we have other kinds of systems that are looking very directly at what the failure rates are. What, uh, we've been hearing not in the last week, <laughs> but maybe a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing a lot about, um, uh, uh, side effects of vaccines, you know, the various clotting disorders and other things. Uh, how well are we monitoring for side effects of these huge vaccine, vaccine distributions? Yeah, I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. The latest one is myocarditis in adolescent yeah, males, yeah. Um, which is, is hard because we're just entering the enteroviral season and, and Coxsackie is the leading cause of myocarditis. And it's always in adolescent, or not always, but it's disproportionately in adolescent males. This is the problem with vaccination programs, universal vaccination programs. Anything that ever happens after it is the vaccine's fault. Yeah. Well, you have to you have to sort of prove that it didn't happen that way. Um, CDC has has some cautious guidance around uh, myocarditis. Basically, it's mild; it goes away with NSAIDs. Some few people have been treated with IVIG. Um, I'm sorry, intravenous immune globulin, but it's not. Um, they, their advice is don't slow down; just keep going. Um, but People are on the lookout through this. If you have side effects that you'd want to re- report, uh, there's a system called the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, V-A-E-R-S, or VAERS, V as in Victor, A-E-R-S. Um, and uh, that's how you can, re- you can report cases to that. You can also query that. There's a database there you can query. So you can say, well, how many cases of, let's say, polymyalgia rheumatica occurred after the Moderna vaccine. You can look that up. Um, they, they, it, I don't know how up-to-date it is, but it's within a week or so, I'm pretty sure. So um, a number of questions um, about the chronic uh, COVID um, uh, condition. I'm not sure it's got a great name yet, but um, what about the effect of COVID on the CNS? Um, and 
what uh, what more can we say about those people with long uh, um, uh, symptoms of, of this disease? Yeah, I got, you know, it's, I, I don't follow these patients, so I don't have yeah. kind of real, you know, firsthand knowledge of it. What I can tell you is that it's real, um, that there is prolonged symptomatology, that people talk a lot about, you know, aches and pains and, um, and you know, sort of changes in mentation, so-called brain fog, which is not my favorite term. Right. Um, Paul and I living here in the Bay Area, we're very, we're very sensitive to the issues of fog. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, I think that's, I think that's, that's, it's all very real and, you know, and we don't have a lot of therapeutics for it. One thing that people have talked about is vaccinating people with these long COVID syndrome symptoms with the, I guess, with the thought probably somewhat simplistic that there's a nest of replicating virus someplace. And if you give them vaccine, you're going to wipe out that nest and the symptoms are going to go away. It's got to be more complicated than that. But I know that some uh, that there has been discussion about putting trials together. They may have started already for all I know. And I think the third thing to say is, this sounds an awful lot like chronic fatigue syndrome and, and myalgic encephal, encephalomyelitis. Uh, and maybe we'll get some insight into those sorts of longer term you know, post-infectious syndromes uh, from this. I would hope that there'd be some silver lining to all of this. Yeah, I think that's going to be a fascinating area to, to follow. I think the, the the skeptics about chronic fatigue and all and all the rest. Um, I think I think we're going to have to kind of backtrack on some of that. I think we're going to find that the that the overlap is really quite striking with, mm -hmm. with this long long COVID, um, and maybe it'll lead us to to more ways to approach uh, therapeutics for people with those other conditions as well. I suspect um, I suspect COVID vaccines and it won't be one of them, but not not yeah. the, not not a COVID vaccine. But uh, so a friend of mine asks, uh, uh, free to comment, and I know you know this story. Uh, Manaus, Brazil. Um, you know they had a huge outbreak. Um, it looked like they had herd immunity, whatever we think about that. Um, and yet there was another big outbreak. Or does that make you kind of? wary about um, being uh, confident that we're going to control this? Well, that's naturally acquired immunity. That's not vaccination. Right. I mean, the first thing about that, and I, I've done a lot of work in Brazil over the years, and I know a lot of these people who did this stuff, who are all very careful virologists and are really, you know, have impeccable credentials. The estimation of what pre prevalence of disease was came from blood donors. And uh, you know how representative blood donors are in a you know a state capital in the middle of the Amazon basin, are of everybody living there. I think is you know, I think that's a stretch. You know, we wouldn't base you know big decisions on on what the prevalence of anything was in blood donors here. Um, so that's the first thing to say. And the second thing is there was a big variant change, and yeah, it's more more complicated, more problematic. The se same thing has happened in Iquitos and in, in uh, Peru. Um, and so it's, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to see. Um, but again, this is the, but not about vaccines holding the line. It's about naturally acquiring acquired immunity, holding the line. And to the extent that you get really big shifts in, in variants, um, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I, I can tell you that right now in California, based on the surveillance systems that are uh, currently available, about 6% of the variants of 6% of the all Isolate, of all genotyped isolates 
are the Brazilian P1 variants. We may be seeing it pretty soon here and finding out for ourselves. So uh, you said something interesting earlier, uh, George, about um, places that have the vaccination has been with the early uh, Chinese or maybe mm -hmm. with the Russian vaccines. That was Chinese. Yeah, but the question here is asked specifically about Sputnik or the Sinopharm uh, vaccines. Do you think that um, areas that have been vaccinated with what arguably might be a less effective vaccine will remain on travel uh, protected lists uh, compared to places that are more heavily vaccinated with mRNA, for example? Is that going to be a factor in decisions? Uh, well, there's really no place that's being vaccinated heavily with mRNA besides the United States yeah. uh, right now. Everybody else is getting adenovirus vaccines. The, the uh, uh, Gamalaya vaccine, the, the Sputnik V uh, Russian vaccine, that's an adenovirus vaccine that um, seems to work really well in terms of published, uh, you know, published results. We don't have a good handle on its side effects um, and whether that's part and parcel of the same kind of um, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia syndrome that's been going on with uh, AstraZeneca and now more recently with J&J. Um, I think that, and I, I get the, I'm sorry, I, I would say that I think it's Sinovac. It's the whole killed virus vaccine okay. uh, that was, and I could easily be wrong on the names um, that's been going on in Chile. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not. I think it's, it's got 62% published efficacy, which is, you know, like a lot of the vaccines is a lot more than it's twice what the influenza vaccine is every year. Uh, I, I suspect if we can get lots and lots of people vaccinated, we um, it'll be a lot. It'll be relatively well controlled. You have to realize that that vaccine is being used extensively in Mexico right now. So it's um, you know we we may get a real up close personal look at it. Too. Yeah. So um, Les Squires is a great HIV doc. Um, hi Les. Um, wonders again going back to HIV. Is there a CD four count? Um, that you would worry about uh, responding? Do we know enough about that or viral load in terms of uh, HIV in response to vaccination for COVID? No, we, we did a cross-match of the COVID and HIV um, registries here. They're not real patterns. They seem to be, didn't seem to be at any particular greater risk. If you look across the published HIV literature, yeah, there's some uh, there is some increased risk for um, uh, for more severe disease. It's not about getting it or not getting it. It's about um, having more severe disease versus less severe disease. Um, and I don't know that anybody's really looked hard at what a CD4 count is or a viral load is, but I can tell you that uh, to my mind, if you have unsuppressed viremia and um, uh, T-cell lymphopenia, you're probably at greater risk of progressive disease and prolonged disease, which is what the real kind of public health concern is, because that's what breeds variants, this sort of constant replication in a single host. So um, I have an interesting question. Are we concerned about possible recombination of viruses? Uh, what about this uh, SARS-CoV-2 with MERS or uh, other coronaviruses? Is that something people are, are looking for at all? No, I don't think so. I mean, so in the land of viruses, sorry to be pedantic here. Yeah, yeah. You got your RNA virus, you got your DNA viruses. Uh, on the spectrum of RNA virus, this is a big RNA virus, which means that it has an enzyme, a polymerase enzyme for 
detecting mutations um, that works pretty well. This does not mutate very fast, maybe one every once every, you know, somewhere one to three replication cycles. So it's not like HIV with this constant shower of mutations. Um, it's, it's a little bit more controlled. And for that reason, I think that, um, I mean, Jay DeLevy is probably going to come up and call me in two seconds to tell me I'm all wrong about this. I think that um, having actual um, sort of wildly different variants and, and recombinants is, is unlikely. So there's a question about oral medications close to approval for outpatient treatment. Um, I'm right now on several data safety monitoring boards for clinical trials. I think it's safe to say, at least I'm not aware of anything that's uh, that's imminent in terms of a, of a new oral medication uh, for outpatient treatment. Obviously, we're still repurposing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, meds that we're here for for other indications that haven't really so far been showing very much effect against against this one. George, you want to comment on that? I, I don't follow that. I don't follow yeah, that stuff yeah. very closely, but I, I know that, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised. So here's a question that I like. Um, I'm not much of a First singer. time for everything, huh? Okay. <laughs> I'm not much of a singer, but I know that there was concern in the early pandemic about transmission yeah. in um in choral groups, uh, singing. Are we to the point now? If the if the if the choir has been vaccinated, that they can come back and sing loudly to each other. Yeah, I think so. I think we're if, if they've been vaccinated. I think that's if they've all been vaccinated. I think that's very doable. Um, well, you know, we, I've done actually some work with the San Francisco Opera, and if you can imagine importing somebody from Italy to come and stand on the on the edge of a stage and spit on 75 year olds, you know, I throw in with a kind of higher risk situation. Um, but uh, there's been a lot of work around trying to mitigate uh, risk from, uh, from singing, especially in these state settings and rehearsals and by big distancing it, you know, you have to get 12 feet in front of people who are singing. And it's the same kind of thing with wind instruments too, especially yep. ones that are woodwinds where you, you where you're more, much more likely to, like I think of a flute where you blow across the top. Um, so there's been quite a bit of work done with those, but I, I think we're really at the point now um, that as we get everybody vaccinated, uh, we'll be able to um, kind of back down the, uh, the cautions. I mean, if you, I don't, don't know that I'd be wanting to sit in the, in the first pew when the choir cuts loose with uh, yeah. Ode to Joy or something, but um I think that there might be some additional mitigation that's going to need to go on for a while. But here in California, the governor said that on June 15th, everything goes unless they're unless you're in mega events with 5,000 indoors or 10,000 outdoors. Uh, so it's um, I think this is all probably going to fall under the allowable uh, guidelines. Got it. So we've been watching Canada uh, pretty closely, our, our near neighbor. Um, I think there was a, bit of a slow start with vaccination, but one of the, one of the participants says that they're now predominantly using mRNA vaccines. And oh, they are. Okay, great, great. I thought they were using all AstraZeneca. Yeah. That's good. Um, and another question, I think you answered this probably, but negative consequences uh, to receiving an mRNA vaccine after the AstraZeneca. I, I don't think anybody knows, uh, right. frankly. Um, and, you know, I probably wouldn't mix and match. 
And then here's one I have no clue about, um, but one registrant wants to know about, says we know many mutations on the spike protein. How much do we know about mutations of RDRP? RBD? Or RD, I think it's another protein of the virus. I'm, I, sh I, I don't know that we know much about it. If we're talking about RBD, the, the uh, receptor binding domain at the tip of the spike protein, we know a lot about that. Yeah. But I, I suspect this is something else. I just don't know. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, again, a fair number of questions um, about uh, kids and schools. Do you want to give us a, a, sure. a couple sentence summary of that again? I know you started by, by going through that. So I, I think that, you know, we'll be able to vaccinate. I think most high school kids will be vaccinated in the United States going into the fall. And I think most middle school children will be vaccinated going into the fall as well. It's the elementary school children from five to 11. Uh, the trials probably aren't going to finish until October. Hopefully we can move quickly to, um, uh, to an emergency use or even to a full expansion of a, of a BLA if, it's, if that exists, the actual licensed thing, if that exists. Um, but until that happens, I think elementary schools are going to be, the kids are going to have to be masked and have to have some social distancing. I think if we can get all the, uh, I think the high schools are going to demand similar things unless they can move to make vaccines um, mandatory or at least have most people vaccinated. And uh, Again, these are decisions that are made district by district. And the RDRP is RNA dependent RNA polymerase. Um, and I think probably George or I don't have the answer to that. No, that one's fine. <laughs> Sorry, I'd like to, I'd like to believe I know everything, um, but I don't. Um, so we're really right at the, at the end of our, of our, George, you've been spectacular. I think one of the questions that, uh, that we've talked about in the ISUSA is whether uh, there's still a value in these, uh, in these dialogues. Uh, George is willing to keep doing them. I'm willing to keep doing them. Uh, but maybe we could uh, have you kind of let us know by email uh, whether uh, there is uh, a still a value in these, and if so, kind of which areas do you want us to, to really try to uh, focus on? We intentionally keep it pretty broad, um, but George, you've been spectacular again, um, and I'll thank the ISUSA staff uh, for uh, really a great effort in putting this together. We had over uh, 200 people uh, on the call today, so uh, good, good, good going. And here we have some other information about other programs uh, that you can find on our website. All right. I think that concludes the program. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Yep.